Hello, this is Rhiannon with the first in a new series of Grazia's Life Advice podcast. Thank you for being with us. We ask the smartest women around to pass on six pieces of advice that they live by, plus one last one they wish they had ignored. Later in the series, we'll hear from Clara Ampho, Amy Hart, Terry White and Charlie Howard. But here for episode one. My name is Candice Brathwaite. I am a mother of two, an author, an influencer, and I am on Grazia's Life Advice. We're so pleased to have Candice as a guest. She is a self-described mummy blogger and influencer who says she first took to Instagram to show young black families weren't just surviving, but thriving. Her success recently hit new heights when her book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, the first to address parenting from a black British perspective, became a Sunday Times bestseller. Coming up, why making a lot of money matters to Candice. One of my goals in life is to buy back Brixton Market. Brixton Market was sold a couple of years ago for like 37 million. And that is crushing because I think the vibes that Brixton Market offers was made because of Africans and West Indians. And I am obsessed with being rich enough just to like give it back to the people who made it such a rich, cultural, vibey place. Her side of the story after she fell victim to online trolling by fellow monthfluencer Clemmie Hooper, aka Mother of Daughters. The things she said about me meant that I couldn't come out publicly online and defend myself. You had accused a black woman of being aggressive. If I had came out and been rightfully and righteously angry, it would have been, oh, but look what she said, look, she's, she is a tad bit aggressive. And we'll hear about the most important men in Candice's life. My dad and my granddad, like, I am the woman I am because of the men who raised me. And I remember my granddad taking me to the chapel of rest to see my dad's body and me just like being overcome with grief and sadness, obviously. But my granddad just like leaning over his body and being really caring, telling my dad like, oh, don't worry, I've got her. So there's plenty to stick around for. This is a brilliant, inspiring chat with one of Grazia's 2020 future shapers. So obviously we're recording in 2020 in strange times in lockdown, Candice. So can you just explain, set the scene, where are you? I am at home in Milton Keynes and today is the first day that both my children are out of the house since March 21st. Big moment. Um, uh, you will not believe. One went to school, one went to his childminder. It was just this sense of, I hate to use the word, but relief. Yeah like oh I can finally commit to doing some work without having to stop and make someone lunch or be distracted Mm. I loved teachers and childminders before (laughs) but like a lot of people who have been defined as key workers in this moment your respect just goes through the roof because you Mm. don't know what you've got till it's gone essentially yeah and I can't believe you've been doing all of that with two kids at home because you've had a massive 2020 so far the release of your first book Tell us what the book's about, um, especially the title. I think that's a really good place to start with what the book's about. Yeah, the, the title, very provocative title, is called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. And the subtitle is What It's Like to Be a Black British Mother. Mm. So people are shocked to hear it's the first ever book in the UK about motherhood and parenting written by a black author. Astounding. And I was very nervous about publishing it during this time. I mean, so few people will publish during a global pandemic. Mm. And I was adamant we should push back a bit. But my publishers were like, no, actually, people have time to read. So let's Mm. go ahead. Um, Unfortunately, 
the murder of George Floyd meant that this book came out, I think, the week before he was murdered. And because mm. of the content of this book, racism, microaggression, class, all of that jazz, this book has been pulled into the conversation and lists that are now saying this is one of the books you need to read in order to invest in anti-racism work. And I feel like I've had a baby and in its first week it's had to go to uni. We've not even sent it to nursery. It's just been like, yeah. come here, love. You graduate, get your cap out into the world. Yeah. But that has meant that, and as a debut author, I'm a Sunday Times bestseller, which is such a rare thing, but not something you can prepare for, for sure. No. And I just wanted to touch on that because I do think that's really interesting. And I saw uh, Reniedo Lodge tweeting about feeling discomfort around her book finding success because of something bad that has happened, specifically the death of a black man and the protests around that. And how did that sit with you? And 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 what were your thoughts around that? Yeah, major. I was terribly uncomfortable the first couple of weeks, not just because of the mm. book, but. I think in seven days, my social media following went up by 120,000. And when you've got wow. that many new eyes on your work or on the things you're saying, mm. of course you're nervous. It's like I've been included in these lists of activists and I don't define mm. myself as an activist. I just happen to pull my phone out when I think dodgy stuff is going down, be that the way the police are interacting with young black boys or be that through um, talking about my traumatic birth story, I never would have in a million years have considered that activism, but that's how some people have come to define me. But with new people showing up in my internet space, I've been really clear about the fact that I don't talk about racism every day. I do not have all the answers. So please do not sit here waiting to be educated or to discuss really heavy stuff 24-7, because I really like mm. lipstick and I really like shoes and I really like clothes. <laughs> and like everyone on this earth, I'm layered and nuanced. And it just so happens that being a black woman in Britain means that I can add to the conversation about certain things. But just like Renee, I was caught between a rock and a hard place. I want to celebrate how well this book is doing, but I'm not ignorant enough not to note that it might not be doing so well if George Floyd wasn't murdered and the amplification of the Black Lives Matter movement didn't happen when it did. Mm. So a lot of people, as you say, turn up to your Instagram page now looking for advice and that's what we're here to discuss today. So should we move on to your first piece of advice that you've sent over? Yeah, the first piece of advice I was given growing up is try not to buy cheap things. Um, my granddad always said, if you buy cheap, you buy twice. Funny enough, I had a friend come and go through my wardrobe today. And the three bags of clothes that left my house are clothes that can be described as cheaper items. Literally, I've seen money walk out of this house just because you want that fast fashion hit or, you know, all of the things that from an environmental standpoint, we're trying to cut down on. And I just think it's been a life lesson on a whole to really save up for those key items, not just in clothing, but in tech, in furniture, in things I buy for my children, because those things do go the distance. And I think grandparents especially 
are really good at investing in key pieces. Fast fashion really wasn't a thing when my grandparents came to this country. And so I have now really learned to live by that piece of advice for sure. Is a lot of the advice that you have learned through life from your grandparents, is that a lot of the things that you you come back to time and time again? All the time. There's so little advice I can get from an age mate, if you know what I'm saying. I'm 32. My other friends who are around the same age, it's like we're kind of swimming through these waters together. Some of us may have experienced death early or those various things, but my granddad's 80, you know, so he's just really looking at it from a perspective way down the line. So I'm more inclined to listen to his advice, so to speak, not to discount the advice of my friends now. But yeah, a big bulk of my life advice is from the older people in my life. And you entered the sphere as an influencer or a momfluencer. I don't know how you feel about that term. But so I find it interesting when you're talking about buying cheap, buying twice. When you're thinking about brands that you work with, there's always this interest in who influencers work with. Is that something you think about and are you careful about who you who you partner with in that way? Completely. I do not partner with people I don't spend with in my real life. I think you can see those kind of ads coming a mile off and I'm just not comfortable with them. Or if a brand does want to work with me and I've never worked with them before, I'm like, you've got to give me at least three to six months to try the product and see if I vibe with it because I'm not in the habit of trying to encourage people to buy things that not only do I not stand by, but might not be useful. But this this is a double-edged sword because I once did an ad for formula milk. Ah! Um, and huge backlash from the mummy community. But what was really interesting is till this day, it's an ad I can stand by because I formula fed both of my children. And Mm. in the case of my daughter, my firstborn, I got sepsis and I was admitted back to hospital and intensive care for five weeks. So what else Mm. was she going to eat? And I just think in moments like that, even when the backlash is a bit heavy, that's why it's important to only promote things you use. Because I was able to weather that storm and be like, the ad's not coming down. Mm. There is a market for formula fed babies. So why should we not be allowed to advertise that, you know? Whereas if I was pretending, I I think I would have folded in that scenario. Isn't it interesting, though, that you felt you needed to explain why your daughter was formula fed you know I I have that same conversation you feel like you need to explain oh this is why I did it though so but you don't need to that's not you know that's not a thing you don't need to at all but it's taken me a long time to learn that and it's taken me an awfully long time to cultivate an audience who agree and respect my non-explanation I would personally rather have a smaller audience for the rest of my life and be able to be myself than be speaking to millions and feel like I have to watch every word. Like, I don't think I could live with that kind of pressure. I do think it's interesting, given that you are an influencer, you influence people, but your second piece of advice is to listen to your own instincts, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Every time I have gone against it, I've ended up in some form of hot water. And it's got to the point where my husband and my management team If I say no, they're like, whoa, whoa, we've been here before. She said no. She said no. Because there have been times what is seemingly on the surface, a great opportunity has arisen. And my instinct has gone, girl, now's not the time. Don't do that. And I've tried to push back. 
and everyone around me who is not feeling what I'm feeling because I'm me has gone why would you say no to that it looks great three to six months down the line they're all like oh my god we should have just listened to you and so I'm very firm now about listening to that inner pull and if I find that it's a quiet no if I try to push against it I find the no just gets louder and louder especially for women I find women of all races end up in really harmful situations when we try to quiet that voice be that a job or a relationship or even in the most horrific of circumstances walking a certain route home late at night you know you had that moment where you were like eh let me not go down that road but for quickness you've gone down there and the worst has happened and I just think um, that is a gift in place for a reason. Are there any specific times you can think of when that that's really paid off for you? Oh, definitely. Um, I sw- just saying it earlier, the birth of my firstborn, mm. a couple about three days after coming home, I had an emergency C-section. I I knew I was unwell. It sounds like I'm overreacting, but it turned out I wasn't. I genuinely knew I was dying. I knew it. Mm. I could feel from the inside out like I was caving in. I was sweating. I was discombobulated. The the pain in my C-section wound was getting worse, not better. But everyone around me, every medical professional was like, it's all in your head. And I was specifically asked to stay off certain mummy websites because they were sure that was what was winding me up. Lucky for me, I fell asleep one night with Esme on my chest. Oh, I know the mummy gang are not going to be happy about that again. During the night, her body wriggled down and she was able to expel an infected sac, which was building up underneath my C-section wound, which had already escaped inside me and was poisoning my bloodstream. So given that fact, I was actually dying. And by the time we got back to hospital, They were like, we need to rush you to emergency surgery and we need to keep you in for a few weeks because you're going into septic shock, which is what my dad died of. That is like that is always my reminder, you know, fight for yourself. You have to advocate for yourself because I knew I was gravely unwell even though everyone around me just didn't believe it. And we have this horrendous figure in the UK, don't we, about the increased rate of of deaths during pregnancy and maternity for black women. And do you think that was do you think that was part of the problem why you weren't listened to, or do you think it was more a wider issue? Oh, I do think it was on on the whole that issue. Black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth in the UK mm. as of today. The overall discussion has highlighted the unconscious bias. A couple of years ago, they did a study in the US and medical professionals did admit they just believed that black women felt less pain. Black women were coming into hospitals. They were like giving them less pain medication, not seeing to them very quickly because of this. But even in the UK now, let's just look at COVID. Black people are more likely to die when it comes to cancer Black people are usually referred in their very late stages. And I do think it has a lot to do with race and unconscious bias, for sure. You, as well as trusting your own instincts, I thought your third piece of advice about parenting was great. And it's not something, to be honest, that I think is uh, talked about enough. Uh, Yeah, my third piece of advice would be 
to understand that your children will teach you how to raise them. And that I've had to learn because in the black community, especially because I was raised primarily by my grandparents and my most notably my granddad, it was very um, strict. It was very, you know, you do it this way. The child goes to bed at this time. You're seen and not heard, so to speak. My granddad was unique in that he was very encouraging about me having an opinion and a voice. But generally in the black community, that's not how children are raised. And I always promised that when I had kids of my own, I would be very fluid and react to what they are showing me. But it is about allowing yourself to be flexible. My day is always easier when I react to what they're giving or showing me, where I'm not trying to be so rigid and scheduled. and feel like I know it all because the great fact about parenting is we don't. You said earlier that your book is the first black parenting book. Did you think it was important to offer that different perspective and and different bits of knowledge that are needed for for people who are maybe not catered for by the kind of usual Instagram mums out there? I always want to remind people that the black voice is not a monolith. Just because I have this book out there, Do you know how many pregnancy and parenting books there are written by white authors? Like hundreds of thousands. And we have one by a black woman in the UK. So hopefully this kind of cracks the door open because just because I'm saying these kind of things and writing the material I do in my book, it doesn't mean that every black woman is going to connect with this or be in agreement. And I think it's really important that we let other kind of voices through the door. I'm really grateful to have this opportunity, but it's a small little slice of the cake, you know? There's so much more to be read and to be understood. When you say that you want, you know, you want more books out there like that, is that something you're keen on doing? Are you are you one of those people who's really keen on sharing the pie, helping others, bringing other women up? Literally, I see that, I know it sounds weird, I see that as like my destiny. I tell my friends all the time, like I used to be, I am still obsessed with being a billionaire. I must have said that on my Instagram one time and a lady was like, oh, Candice, I really like you, but, you know, capitalism is killing the world and the world doesn't need more billionaires. I'm like, sweetie, when last did you check that Forbes list? Because there are not a a lot of black female billionaires, that's for sure. And I think in order to, like, get black voices into a position of power, we do need that kind of financial advancement. It's all well and good protesting and marching and asking for equality in day-to-day areas of our lives. But these things have to be backed up with the Great British Pound. This money has to be flooded back into black communities. And on the whole, those who have access to that kind of money aren't black. So they're not going to be the first to think of, right, how can I keep black boys in school and in uni and help them go into training that will get them the best jobs. It's not happening. And so I am obsessed with being that rich. Like one of my goals in life is to buy back Brixton Market. Brixton Market was sold a couple of years ago for like 37 million to property investors. And that is crushing because I think the vibes that Brixton Market offers was made because of Africans and West Indians that migrated to this country. And now we don't own any of that. And I am obsessed with being rich enough just to like put ownership on that space again and give it back to the people who made it such a rich, cultural, vibey place. Mm. 
Well, you're on your way anyway with your with your bestseller. <laughs> we'll be back with more from Candies after this. This is the Grazia Life Advice Podcast. I'm here with Sunday Times bestselling author Candice Brathwaite, as we were just discussing. And uh, I'm excited to hear your fourth piece of advice. My fourth piece of advice is to always look into having your clothes tailored or altered. And I say that as a very short woman. I'm barely five feet tall, but I'm really hippie. I straddle between a 14 to 16. And trying to find clothes that fit me really well can be really hard because as soon as you say the word petite people think ultra slim and it's like no petite for me just means really short I still have a lot of backside and I need clothes that can accommodate my girth clothes that you buy on the high street just look really really good if you take the time to take them to the tailor get the legs hemmed properly, little nits and tucks just make such a difference and can really take what people would say is um, a high street look and really elevate it. And I don't think tailors are praised enough. We in the UK, we shop off the rack. And of course, these clothes are, are tailored to these invisible people. And I think to really make yourself feel and look good, you should develop a relationship with a tailor or seamstress at your local dry cleaner. Where did that piece of advice come from? Who told you or was it a a hard won lesson for yourself? Definitely hard won but my granddad who is such a spiffy dresser like when he is ready to put that three-piece suit on you just you want to cry it's so slick but he's also short in stature and I always used to think you know granddad how do you look so smart he's like it's a tailor or when he's really pushing the boat out, he he would go to Savile Row and have something done, custom. And it just made him look immaculate. And so whilst he didn't encourage me to do it, it's definitely something I've noticed from him. Mm. Well, you always look fantastic on your Instagram. Is that something that you pride yourself in? Is it something you're really keen to to always look your best? Yes. But it's a, do you know what? It's a lot deeper than that. And I didn't realise it till writing the book. When we talk about the Windrush generation, the black people that came to the UK, they came with one suitcase, not much else. And there was just this vibe of always wearing your Sunday best, as we call it, because you couldn't buy yourself out of your blackness. You're not going to escape racism, but you could perhaps work your way into a better class by looking a certain way. My granddad always said, if you don't have a pound in your pocket, no one should be able to tell by looking at you. And I've heard that since I was a little girl. And he used to iron my hair ribbons, hair ribbons. He would steam iron them before school, before tying it into a knot and undoing all his hard work. And if I would come home with like my shoes muddy, he'd be furious because he'd be like, you know, you need to keep up appearances. You need to look good. It might actually be looking good that gets you into certain places and open certain doors. So I do think there's a tiny cog always in the back of my mind thinking I need to kick it up a notch in order to just be respected. Before even my work is shared, I do believe I have to look a certain way to get where I'm going. Um, as my career's developed, it now is just for fun. I just enjoy getting dressed. It is medicine for my soul. I respect it greatly that people have spent the entire lockdown in tracksuit bottoms, but over my dead body. And honestly, <laughs> if, I, if I die and someone puts me in tracksuit bottoms, I know they hated me in life because, <laughs> dude, you know that's not my vibe. Don't you? <laughs> 
You've mentioned your granddad a few times, always with a smile on your face. It's clear that you, you know, really respect him and the older generations. And why why is that? Why is he so important to you? My granddad, oh, he just makes me feel warm and fuzzy. My mum and my dad split up when I was really young and my mum wanted to return to full-time work and she was living with her parents, my maternal grandparents at the time. And my granddad was uh, mugged really violently just before I was born. And he was left blind in one eye, which um, socially or, or from a government perspective left him unfit for work. So he immediately became a house husband. And my nan went out to full-time work to pay the mortgage. So when my mum wanted to go back to work, he was like, I'll raise candies. But like this was in the late 80s, early 90s. There wasn't flexible working or men on Instagram lobbying for paternity leave. Like all of his friends were like, Ben, his first name's Bentley. They're like, Ben, what are you doing? This is crazy. Like this is woman's work. And he took such pride in getting me to school on time and coming to like all my plays and recitals and and parent teacher evening like he was always present and then my dad who I had a great relationship with died really suddenly from the flu when I was 20 my dad and my granddad like I am the woman I am because of the men who raised me which we don't hear often but the woman I am has nothing to do with the women in my life which is really weird I'm the woman I am because of the male energy. And when my when my dad just disappeared, my world folded in. And I remember my granddad taking me to the chapel of rest to see my dad's body and me just like being overcome with grief and sadness, obviously. But my granddad just like leaning over his body and being really caring, telling my dad like, oh, don't worry, I've got her. And I genuinely feel that. So like one of my major goals is to buy a new house big enough so that my granddad dies with me. That's very important to me. He lives in sheltered accommodation at the minute for like older people. And I don't want to get a call and be like, oh, you're, no, he has to die with me. He's had such an impact in my life. And I was so robbed of that experience with my dad. I just think that it, it will be a full circle moment for him to end life with the granddaughter who, I'm a Sunday Times bestseller, but my granddad can't read. He can't read. And when he got my book, he had to take it to a friend who owns a corner shop near him to read to him. But I wouldn't have the education I have if he didn't take such an interest in raising me. My respect for him and for the older generations who make the ultimate sacrifice which is their life, their time, their dreams, their opportunities. I cannot, I cannot give enough back to those yeah. kind of people. Well, God, what an amazing man. Your fifth piece of advice, I'm going to need uh, specific details for this one. <laughs> Tell everyone your fifth piece of advice. Oh, so, yes, my fifth piece of advice is when people show you who they are the first time, believe them. The first time I heard that concept was from our great Lady Oprah. That is the first time I heard it put into those words, especially for women. We're far too forgiving and you end up, be it with a partner or a boss or a friend who seeks to belittle you at the pub or at a bar. You know that friend who, when it's just you and them, everything's gravy. But when you get in a group, they really do take side jabs. I think when you see that kind of behavior the first time, 
you could say, I didn't like that. Please don't do that again. But that second and third, if you don't cut them off or step away from that person, it's on you. It is on you because they have given you examples of the behavior that is going to continue in one way or another. And so I think for women, especially a bit like the intuition thing, don't allow yourself to be hurt or caught in a wheel of trauma again and again and again. You were caught at the end of the last year in quite a public um, situation with uh, Clemmy Hooper, another influencer. Do you want to explain the situation? or? <laughs> yeah, in really brief terms, Clemmy Hooper at the time was, um, I people would regard her as the queen bee of the mummy blogging scene. And she got rumbled as being a troll on a vicious website that spoke about people. And she was going onto this website pretending to be someone else and speaking about people like me and other mummy bloggers who worked with her. So her peers, basically, I think what what added a little bit more fuel to the fire with me is that the comments were very racist in tone. She said that I weaponized race and I came across as really aggressive. And I think what the only thing that un- undid me in that moment is I'd only recently been on her podcast, Birth Stories, and really in detail went through my horrific birth story with my firstborn and also to try and get people to understand how black women in Britain are five times more likely to die in childbirth. I am too old now and don't have enough ego to really care about the immature side of trolling. But when we move into a space where we are discussing black women who are in public spaces in a racist manner, that's when all bets are off for me. And, you know, I think it would be easy for people to say, oh, it was it was an Instagram spat, you know, but I remember speaking to you not long after it and it, it had a real impact on, on you and your mental health, didn't it? Yeah, completely. Because, again, the things she said about me meant that I couldn't come out publicly online and defend myself. You had mm. accused a black woman of being aggressive. With that one sentence, I didn't have a leg to stand on. Mm. If I had came out and been rightfully and righteously angry, it would have been, oh, but look what she said. Look, she's, she is a tad bit aggressive. So even in the moment of being trolled, being racially trolled, I had no voice. Mm. It was like, kid, you have to zip it right now because you will be playing into the narrative she set up for you. Mm-hmm. luckily for me the book hadn't gone to print yet my book hadn't and so I had resolved with myself that I would get some things off my chest in a more suitable manner and mm-hmm. in a manner that displayed grace yeah. and when you're really upset and you've been hurt you, you can't be graceful you just mm-hmm. be responding from a place of anger so I'm glad actually I had the time to sit down and think about how I wanted to respond mm. absolutely your your final piece of advice kind of links to that. It's about focusing on your own strengths. And, and why why is that important? Yeah, my final piece of advice is to focus on your strengths and then also to be willing to call people in to work on your weaknesses. I think the world is really quick to point out where women aren't doing well or what they should change about themselves. Oh no, that hair colour doesn't suit you. And no, 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 no. You'll forever be on this wheel of, trying to better yourself to suit someone else's mold but I think I've succeeded because I'm just like this is what I'm good at I cannot focus on anything else but also as now my business is expanding I'm terrible with data I'm terrible with calendars 
I can't turn up anywhere on time because I've not even put it in my diary right. And so now, a couple of days ago, my husband quit his job. I was like, listen, I've come as far as I can by myself. And if we want to build this, I need more help. And I, I just want to encourage women to like double down on what you're good at. And as you grow, be that in life or in business, you then call in an army to focus on the things you're not great at. No one is going to be good at everything. And I think women have spent far too many years trying to be good in the kitchen. And then you've got to be sexy for whoever. And then you've got to go to work. And it's like, actually, I don't even wash up. Have you seen my nails? I'm just not great at it. So let's call in someone else to help with that. And I think it will really just help us take over the world, basically. (laughs) Yeah, and it feeds into what is your, we always ask people what their worst piece of advice is. And that is your worst piece of advice that you have to do everything yourself if you want something done better. And where where in your life do you do you get people in to help you where's where specifically uh, definitely in my workspace I couldn't have the career I have without really good management it's hard especially as a woman to advocate for yourself and mm. to talk money and that's another thing we're not encouraged to talk money as women again regardless of race we feel like we can't ask for a raise or we're not worthy and I think having other people around you to talk financials will really just blow your mind because Mm -hmm. whatever you think you're worth someone's going to look at you and add two zeros Mm -hmm. and that's who you need to send out into the world if you want to grow in business and I think when it comes to my domestic life I'm lucky enough to end up with someone just like my granddad who is not demasculated by washing up or ironing or doing those things in the house that are usually called women's chores. Mm -hmm. And so asking him to do the washing up whilst I record this podcast, that is me like calling in the big guns. And then with friends, when I'm like at capacity or I just need someone to talk to, my therapist, for instance, I think if you can afford it, therapy should be there for everyone as a space to like safely discuss the things you're going through so every area of my life I I have a team yeah I need to have a team I can't do it alone absolutely that's all been absolutely fantastic Candice thank you so much for your time I've absolutely loved speaking to you no thank you for having me it's been amazing thank you Next time on Grazia Life Advice Podcast, I'll be speaking with editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine and author of new memoir, Coming Undone, Terry White. Often, I think as women, and I think definitely as a working class woman, I should have known that I was talented enough, that I was smart enough to do it and still be able to have a life outside. Thank you for being with us. Make sure you subscribe so you get new episodes as soon as they're published. And if you've enjoyed listening, tell people about us, share a link on social media so your friends can listen too.